You're listening to locally produced programming created in KUNV Studios on public radio, KUNV 91.5. The content of this program does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz and More, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or the Board of Regents of the Nevada System of Higher Education. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk UNLV. KUNV 91.5. You're here with Tanya. And Alicia. Hey. Good to see you. Feels Likewise. like it's been a minute. Listen, so, great to be back in the studio. Wonderful. So today we are meeting with the most wonderful Justin Atkins, mm-hmm. who has the the blessed and magnificent distinction of being a Marine. <laughs> and I say... <laughs> And I say being a Marine because we do not give back (laughs) our people. So once a Marine, always a Marine. Hello, Justin. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Say hello. And so today we're going to be talking about um, Veterans Day, right, Tanya? Oh, yeah. This Mm -hmm. is the the day that we have conversations about our men and women in uniform. Mm -hmm. Although we should be part of the conversation all of the time, but this is the day specifically designated for that. Also, November has another distinction, which is that it is the month of the Marine Corps birthday. Oorah. Ooh, I didn't know that. Absolutely, absolutely. We celebrate our birthday in the month of November as well. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm excited about today's episode. Oh, me too. I'm super excited. So, Justin, you know, I at the risk of spoiling your bio, because <laughs> I've been reading it and it's like super duper exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you share with our listeners your origin story? Um, you can start with the military piece or you can start with the how you got here piece. You can tell the story in whatever order suits your heart. Yeah, so I guess it's, uh, it's a long story. I'm sure you saw from the bio, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I grew up. Yeah, I grew up in Michigan, and uh, the Marine Corps was just kind of never on my mind. I never thought about military service. Uh, my dad worked for the General Motors on the assembly line, so I just kind of thought that that was what I was going to do. And in my senior year of high school, I actually had a application to General Motors. Uh, that's where I was going to go, and then September 11th happened. Um, I was a senior in high school when September 11th happened, and I remember they made an announcement over the, the public address system and said, we, we don't know what's going on. We think the nation might be under attack. Uh, if any students want to go home, you can go home, or you can come to the library. Um, and they kind of had the news on there, so I went to the library because I had to stick around for football practice anyhow. Um, and then I, I just remember feeling enraged and confused and upset, and I didn't know what I was going to do. So um, a few of us had the idea to go to the, the recruiter's office to join the, the military that day, so I did. I ended up leaving school and uh, going to the recruiter's office. And I, it's funny that I saw one of the questions on the list was like, what, why the Marine Corps? And it was because it had the shortest line. Um, so the day, I got to the, <laughs> the day I got to the recruiting office, there was a line out the front door. It was the Metro Detroit Recruiting Center. But the Navy line, the Army line, everything was out the door. So uh, the Marine Corps had the shortest line. So I joined them because I had to get back to school for football practice. Um, yeah, ended up going into the delayed entry program. I just told the recruiter, you know, like, I'm upset about what happened. I want to fight. Um, so he was like, yeah, I'll put you in the infantry. Um, ended up graduating from high school and then taken off to uh, to the Marine Corps that way. And then I'm sure we'll talk about my military career, but uh, ended up getting medically retired. Um, I got hurt over in Iraq and everything else like that. I could be a normal person, but I just couldn't be in the, the infantry anymore. I got out, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I was like, oh, I've got this GI Bill. Let me give this a shot. I started out at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. 
I ended up coming to UNLV thinking I wanted to do physical therapy, um, just kind of take that idea around for a little bit and ended up in medical school somehow, uh, did a master's degree down at Baylor in public health, and uh, now I'm over here at the Kirk Recorian School of Medicine at UNLV. Wow. Well, we're definitely grateful to have you. Let me start off by saying, too, thank you for your service. And then also, Tanya is in the studio. Thank you for your service. Where will we be without our service men and women? So thank you so much. And like I second Tanya in the beginning of this um, episode, just talking about how impressive your background is. But with that being said, I know you told us why you enlisted. And that's so courageous. I can't say that at the age of what, 17 or 18, I would have the motivation or the courage to say, let me enlist because you heard about 9-11. So with that, with some of the experiences, have you had any positive moments or what were some of your best moments uh, while serving in in the service? Yeah, there's so many, it's hard to narrow it down. And I, I love to be a Marine, and I, it's something I thought that I was going to do for forever. I thought I was going to be the old guy that they were going to come into my office one day, and like, you have to retire and leave. <laughs> I didn't think that I was ever going to be taken off, but uh, since I got hurt in Iraq, I had got medically retired. But I think, like, if I had to pick, like, one thing, it was the, the people I served with. Um, I just don't think you get that connection anywhere else. Um, I, I was an infantry guy. I ended up being an infantry platoon commander before I got out. And I knew everybody like intimately, like I knew where they were from. I knew what their story was. I knew if they had nicknames, I knew about it. I knew their wives. I knew their, their brothers, their sisters, their children. We would get together and do barbecues and whatnot. And like, I took it very, very seriously that I knew that it was my job to make sure that all of those, uh, those men and women that I served with got home safely. Um, so I'd always, it was, I mean, it was a pain to stay up all night and kind of re- read combat orders and read intelligence reports and everything else like that. Um, but I always wanted to make sure that I didn't leave a stone unturned. So if there was another unit that had been in the area, I'd make sure I called them and kind of talked with them. But just, just being there for them and being that, that driving force in their life and then knowing that just my presence there on the battlefield made them feel like they had a chance um, to go home and everything else like that, that really, really took that seriously. And the connections that I've made with those guys that I still keep in touch with to this day, a lot of them, um, I'd say by far was the the best thing that I could remember from my time in the military. So much of your story resonates with me. You know, um, my family was in New York during 9-11. So I remember that this, Mm. this, this drive, this impetus, this frustration, this desire to do something and not knowing what the something was. So, you know, again, it's, it's impressive that that's what you did is that you enlisted and in the Marine Corps of all things. And when you talk about the shortest line, having been through Marine Corps boot camp, I can understand why that line was short. <laughs> you know, Yes, indeed. It's, <laughs> the Marines is its own wonderful, beautiful, magical beast mm-hmm. of a thing that is. In, and also, again, thank you for your service and thank you for your sacrifice. And as you talk about these relationships in these communities, you know, um, the other piece that's notable is that you didn't just have, first of all, that you were a grunt, um, an 0311 for those who are familiar. It's the military occupational specialty. So you were, in fact, a grunt, <laughs> which I'm familiar with grunts. Uh, y'all are a different breed as well. <laughs> but but as I, as I listened to the story and I listened to this, it's not lost on me that, you know, when you enlisted, you, you had more than one deployment. So how long were these deployments and and what are some of the, and and first let me just preface it by saying this. Um, Is it okay if I ask questions related to your deployment? Because not everyone feels comfortable sharing things Mm -hmm. around their deployment and I don't want to put you in a position where you have to share where you're not uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Are you okay with me? 
Okay, wonderful. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the most memorable things about the deployment? Like um, from the point where you discovered that you were going to be deployed to actually being deployed, what are some things that stick with you? Yeah, so I, 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 was, I remember because when I started off in the Marine Corps, I, I think that I'd written in my bio too that I was security forces. So I'd ended up guarding nuclear missiles down in Georgia starting off and then the invasion had happened and everything else. So we kind of felt down there like we were missing the war because you're in the infantry, you want you want to go and fight. Um, so when I got my orders to Camp Lejeune, um, I was very excited about it. I'd gotten signed to anti-terrorism battalion and you're just kind of wondering, all right, when's it going to happen for us? When's it going to happen for us? Um, and then we finally gotten told that we were going to deploy and it was supposed to be, I think, in uh, January um, of 2006, um, but they had ended up bumping us up to October. So we... Uh, I don't know what the reason for that was. I, I think I was a Lance Corporal at the time, so I didn't know much about anything. Um, but I just knew that that's when we had to go. So I kind of went home and told my wife and my kids, like, Dad's got to take off a little bit earlier. And I remember, like, being like, oh, that's saying, like, be careful what you wish for. And then it, it kind of got very real when I knew that I only had a month to go. Um, and then you're kind of, you know, guys from boot camp that had gone over there before and guys I'd gone through infantry training battalion with who had died over there in the war. Um, guys that had gotten messed up and stuff. And I just remember asking other guys in my unit who had been there before, I'm like, you know, like all the questions you worry about, like what's combat like, you know, what is it like to get shot at? Like, how am I going to go and do my job as an infantryman and know that I'm most likely going to have to like, you know, kill another human being. And like, how am I going to live with that? And how am I going to deal with these types of things and all the questions that go through your brain um, and then getting on that plane at the first time. And then like the plane takes off and then you're like, all right, well, I hope that I get to come back and step on American soil again, but you don't know that, you know, and then you take off into the, the other country and you you just got that, that fear of the unknown. You don't know what to happen. Uh, we land in Kuwait and you're seeing these units coming out of Kuwait and you're looking at these guys in their faces and like um, some of the guys that weren't so lucky that lost a limb or whatever. And you're like, I can't believe that I'm getting ready to go into this and just uh, the sheer terror. But, it's like I said before, um, there's certain guys in the unit you just kind of gravitate to that had been to combat before, and then you just kind of look at them, like, all right, he's still calm, but we're okay right now. Because I didn't know what to go on, but you've got the certain certain war fighters or whatever that have been there, done that, and like, they just look calm, they look collected, and you don't know how they're in that state of mind, but they just kind of make you calm, um, not knowing what you're getting into. Um, then I remember getting on the, the helicopters at night and flying into Iraq. And when you hit the ground and, like, you step off and your boot touches that soil and you realize, like, you're in a combat zone, it's just this surreal feeling that just rushes over your body. Like, did you never – one, you know, like, I, I going back, like, I had a flashback to the moment where, like, okay, one, I signed up for this. I volunteered for this. Now, here I am in Iraq. Um, I'm a, I think I was, like, a 19-year-old kid at the time or something like that. I've got a weapon on me. I've got these other things like that. I'm like, now I've got to do what I've sent here to do. Um, that first deployment kind of got cut short. Um, I ended up getting hit by a roadside bomb um, in January. We had gotten there in October, and then I think January 21st, um, I'd gotten hit by a roadside bomb. Uh, I'd gotten medevacs uh, to launch stool and then back to the United States. Um, I spent a year in a wheelchair, um, and then they wanted to medically retire me. So I remember we, we were out on a, on a patrol, um, and we got an ambush from the side. We were a mounted patrol. We were a mounted unit in Humvees or whatnot. Um, and then I was the middle stick commander, so I'd gotten tasked with going and flanking the enemy position. Um, and as we were driving towards the area, um, the insurgents that had kind of ambushed us, they kind of knew we were going to take the road because we were a mounted unit. Um, so we'd ended up hitting two anti-tank mines that were stacked underneath the ground, uh, blew my leg off, killed some guys in my vehicles. <clears throat> and I was, I don't remember much from that night. It knocked me unconscious, um, but I, I remember 
um, when I got to the hospital in Baghdad after the medevac and then like kind of coming to and then realizing what was going on and asking like where are my guys at and they're like you know like um, Vice Corporal Scott and Private Calapini didn't make it like you're okay and then like we're going to amputate your foot and I was like the there's absolutely no way in heck you're going to amputate my foot. Like I wanted to go back out there because you don't want to, you don't want to be laying in the hospital and they're like eating three meals a day and you're, you're warm and you're watching TV and like knowing that all those other guys that you served with, that you connected with are still out there doing it. Um, so I refused medical retirement. Uh, I ended up deploying another time uh, for a year to train the Iraqi military. Um, and it was, so neat to see the different sides of that. So it was interesting to go back and train guys that you would like, you'd come to find out you'd fought against the first time. Um, so at that point, we had kind of overthrown the Iraqi uh, government. They kind of stood down, and these guys were coming from their homes. Um, and it kind of reminded me of the United States when it gotten started with, like, the Minutemen and all these other people. Um, so they were bringing their own weapons from home. They weren't getting paid by the government because there was no government. We were having to go and pick them up in like these little discreet locations in the middle of the desert so that insurgents wouldn't know where they were coming from and then drive them onto the base. Um, and then you would talk to them, you know, you'd hear their stories like, oh, you know, where are you from? Like, how long have you been in the, in the Iraqi military? And like, oh, I was in the professional Iraqi military. And then I had fought in Fallujah and you'd hear some of them had fought in Fallujah. Like, well, when were you in Fallujah? And then you'd find out like, okay, well, we probably shot at each other. And then it just kind of puts things in perspective for you that like, this is just a human being it was told things over a controlled media thing by, you know, Saddam Hussein, and they were told that we were coming to overthrow their country and take their oil. And then you put it in the perspective, it's like, well, here I was when I was a 17, 18-year-old kid in high school, and I heard my country was under attack. I did what I did, and this guy did what he did. So it just kind of puts things in perspective for you in that humanistic nature. Um, and then getting to learn about them. I'd go to church with them, even though I'm not Muslim, to kind of learn more about their culture. Um, I ate their food with them in the chow hogs. There's only 19 of us on that team, Marines. We were living amongst like 3,000 Iraqi soldiers. Um, so at first you kind of get nervous. You're like, you know, <laughs> if at any point these guys decide that they don't want us here anymore, there's nothing that we're going to be able to do about it. But just the, the connections we made with those guys and then going through combat and teaching them, like, you know, this is how you, you write a combat order. This is how you deploy. Um, when things happen, these are the tactics that we use to get around them. Um, on that second deployment, I ended up getting into a machine gun fight um, with a place where we'd gotten ambushed or whatever. And then just seeing it from the machine gun turret, them flanking the position, um, throwing grenades in to subdue the guy and everything else like that, dragging the bodies out, clearing the building. And it just like, it really clicked that it, it went from um, that animosity to like just being a well-oiled machine in a team and then just watching them take everything that we had taught them and just kind of run with it. Uh, we stayed there for a year, and then when I came back, um, they had put me as a combat instructor, so I taught uh, a bunch of younger Marines those combat skills and everything else like that. I uh, spent three years um, teaching uh, as a combat instructor, and then they sent me out to California. And when they found out that I was a, a master instructor of weapons and tactics, they kind of used and abused that. Um, they deployed me again out in the Pacific Theater, so I went to Africa, um, Italy, uh, Japan, Korea, and I, I taught a bunch of classes to foreign militaries about human tracking, um, how to interrogate witnesses, um, patrolling skills, weapon skills, kind of you name it. The last deployment was by far the funnest because I was getting paid combat duty pay to be in like countries or whatever. And like, you could still go to the bar at the end of the day, which we like as Marines. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the funnest, but yeah, those were the, the three deployments I'd gone on. And I know that was super long winded, but that was, that was all of them. 
Oh no, no that, that was, was that was excellent. What a powerful story. What a yes. powerful narrative. There were so many pieces of it that that resonated with me to my core and there are pieces of it that are, are unfamiliar to me. Um, my unit, when you said Camp Lejeune, I was like, ooh, Lejeune. I remember Camp Lejeune. <laughs> um, I was with Headquarters Battery 10th Marines when we deployed to Desert Storm, but it was a very different experience than the experience that you're, de- de- that you're describing now. But I do remember being that young and writing wills and, and signing over things and wondering when you got on the plane what was on the other side. That unknown was truly terrifying you know I think that unknown is always terrifying when you know that you're not deploying for training and you're deploying for real for real kind of way but your story is um your story is actually incredible and the other piece that's interesting to me is so very marine like so I'm missing a limb but don't you dare pull me off of duty yes don't you dare tell me I can't go back Mm -hmm. you know um that that level of commitment, you know, at the risk of making other branches upset, but but the level of commitment to to each other mm-hmm. and to the mission is such a strong attribute of being a Marine. You know, my comfort, my safety matters less than the fact that my unit needs me in that other side. So I guess the question I have for you is what do you think, what is something that you think you learned about yourself as as a Marine? Like what 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 did Marine being a Marine teach you about you? Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first got to boot camp and I was kind of wondering all that, that else, and you just kind of learn that there's really nothing that you can't deal with uh, at the risk of sounding cocky. Um, but you just kind of, every single time that I would think to myself, you know, like, I'm not going to be able to do this. I can't run another step. I can't run another mile. I can't put another pound in my pack and carry it. Um, it started off being that drill instructor that was there to kick you in the behind and tell you, yes, you can, and absolutely you will, and it wasn't even a choice in the first place, so I don't know why you're thinking about it, um, to kind of make you do it. But then that, that kind of just gets embodied after a while, and that just kind of becomes who you are. Um, and I, I think that may be one of my problems today is why I just keep on going to school and keep doing more and more and more because it's just you, you always have a thirst for more, and I feel like that just kind of comes as a, as a Marine. You just want you accomplish one mission and you're immediately looking to the next mission. So it's like, all right, what's next on the, on the docket? What's next on my plate? Um, this, this wasn't hard enough. What can I do to make this more challenging or, or how can I test myself to go a little bit further? But I, I just kind of learned my, myself as a Marine as I went through all those experiences and combat and boot camp and everything else. And you name it, that like, not only can I do it, I can do this and I can do very well to the point where other people are going to want to try to do better than me. Um, so I just, I just learned the capabilities I had as a leader that I never knew that I had. It just kind of got dug out of me. I learned that I can always, I can carry one more pound. I can always, you know, go one more step. I can run another mile. I can just, I can always push myself to keep going further, even though if it seems like I can't, I, I guess that word just kind of not in my vocabulary anymore. It's so funny. Marines aren't, they're not cocky at all. That's yeah. not, <laughs> he said that's, it's the expense n- of sounding cocky. Nobody will ever attribute that to a Marine. Um, so... <laughs> I love that. I think that um, the statement, there's nothing I can't do. Is that what helped lead you or um, did it guide you to the motivation of wanting to become a doctor? Tell us a little bit about that for those who are listening. Yeah. um, So being a doctor was not on my radar (laughs) at all. Like I said, I I had wanted to go. I thought I was going to work for General Motors. Um, Mm -hmm. My family did not have a lot of money growing up. So I remember my father told me, you know, college is not an option. So if you you do want to go to school, we can't pay for it. Um, I'm the first person in my school to ever, in my family to ever go to college. 
So we didn't know about student loans and, and all the other stuff like that. We just always thought that, like, if somebody was a family was going to college, they had a lot of money to be able to send their their kid there. Um, so I I played football, I played hockey, I played baseball, and I was all right, but I just wasn't that good. So like the sports scholarships weren't coming through. So that, that kind of sounds weird, but had 9/11 not happened and changed the entire trajectory of my life, I would probably still be working. Um, on the assembly line up in General Motors and stuff like that and doing very fine. I mean, that was a, that was a great job in my family when I was a kid. Um, but I found myself in Iraq and didn't really know uh, what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I thought that I was going to stay in the Marine Corps forever, like I said. Um, but we got an intelligence one time that there was um, things buried underneath the desert. So the F-18s are fighter jets, and they can kind of fly over top, and then the pilots can get heat signatures in the ground when they fly over at nighttime. So they had called our unit and let us know, like, hey, we're getting a lot of weird heat signatures in the desert. We think there's things buried over there. We'd like you to go check it out. Um, intelligence kind of done like a, a satellite sweep of the area and said there was no insurgents in the area. When my unit got there, it was, couldn't have been further from the truth. So it ended up being like a three-day fight for this little town. Um, we ended up launching mortars into the town. Um, we had to try to attack the town like two or three times and trying to minimize civilian casualties. But this town had gotten decimated. Um, so by the time we'd finally gotten through and stuff like that and gotten all the survivors together and everything else and then had found the stuff that the pilots were talking about, you know, our, our leaders were like, all right, well, we need to get the Navy in here to kind of take care of these people. So they flew in a bunch of Navy positions, and then I was an infantry guy, so I was tasked with providing security to the doctor I was with. But it was amazing to me to see the power that that guy had that day in that town. This is a little little town in the middle of nowhere, western Iraq. I don't know if the government, there were no roads to even get to it. Um, I don't know if the government even knew about these people, but you could tell that it was probably the first time that somebody had ever just stopped or like put that much bother to fly positions to their town to take care of them and like see how overwhelmed these people were with joy to like have a doctor like come in front of them and ask them, are you okay? Like, let me see that cut on your arm. Let me treat this for you. Let me cast this broken arm. Like your kid is going to be okay. And then like the, the confidence that that doctor instilled in those people that day. And he kept telling people all the time, we're here for you. We're here for you. Uh, and to see the power that he had. I mean, they're like, I thought that I was pretty powerful being, you know, like a 20 something year old Marine. I'm walking around with a weapon. Like, I'm like, Oh, I can liberate countries and I can tear down cities and I can fix the world, you know, but like um, the power he had that day. And, it, and then at that point I was like, well, maybe I should be a doctor, but I just didn't see a pathway. So I was this bloody, just got done with a three-day battle in the middle of the desert with a weapon and sweaty and nasty, no college whatsoever. I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's never going to happen. Um, but like I said, when I'd gotten out of the Marine Corps, I didn't know what I wanted to do when they medically retired me. Um, so I had the GI Bill. I'm like, well, let me try this college thing out. I, I had to go through a lot of physical therapy to, to get back to a point where I could even walk and get out of the wheelchair and everything else like that. So I'm like, well, I think I'd like to be a physical therapist and be that person to put people back on the right path. Um, and then just kind of being a leader in the Marine Corps, I saw like how much physical therapists have to check with insurance, how much physical therapists have to check with the doctor, what's the plan, what's the plan. And I just kind of like to be the person in charge. So um, everything in the inside of me kept telling me, like, you need to just go and try to go to medical school. But it's so intimidating, like the path with the letters of recommendation and having to pass DMCAT. And, like, I've got to take a year of biology and a year of chemistry and a year of organic chemistry and all these courses that just made me want to scream when I was signing up for them and just thinking, like, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. But again, that little Marine voice in the back, it's like, well, yes, you can. And, and you know, you can. So you just need to stop it and do it. Um, so I, I did. And then I ended up here. So um, that's, that's kind of how I got to, to medical school. 
You know, some of what you said is so. A lot of what you said is really beautiful. So the things that captured my my mind and captured my attention were the relationship pieces. You know, the things that not only you learned about yourself, but you learned about relationships to others, and how that transition from warrior to healer happened. Ooh, I love that, that. Say that again. That transition from warrior to healer, and I loved when you talked about the ways in which you can you can change and you can change the world and you can change people's trajectories and that you wanted to be on the forefront of helping people have a better life one way or another. So it seems like your calling just shifted and in some ways they're still very much aligned. What was the transition like for you to um, transition from, from Marine to civilian to then a med student? Like, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was, it was rough. It was, Man, yeah, so I remember my first day um, when my wife and I, we got out of the Marine Corps, but my wife was a Marine also, so she retired. She took the early retirement, um, and then I got medically retired within about six months of her uh, doing her 15 years. Um, so we got out in California, and we had thought about staying in California, but it was just so expensive to try to live in San Diego with two people. We didn't know what our future was. We didn't know what we were going to do for a living, anything else like that. So her mother-in-law was living, or my mother-in-law, her mother was living in Kansas City, so we moved out to Kansas City, much cost, uh, cheaper cost of living out that way. So I started off at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and then I remember when I was going through, like, steps and taps, I don't know what they're calling it these days um, in the Marine Corps, but they told us, like, you know, when you're going out there in the world, try to, like, do a professional front and dress for the job you want. So I, at the time, I thought I wanted to be a physical therapist, so I'm like, okay, well, this is a doctor of physical therapy. Doctors wear suits, you know. I, I didn't know what doctors wore, so I wore a suit my very first day of school at uh, University of Missouri, Kansas City. Um, I got there 20 minutes early to the classroom. I had gone like two or three days before and just kind of reconned out like, all right, this is the route that I'm going to take to get to school. If there's traffic this way, I'm going to go this way. I checked like, you know, 45 minutes before I left the house on like the maps to make sure that there were no traffic jams, anything else like that. Um, figured out where I was going to park, which, which ways I was going to take to get to school. Um, and then I got to the classroom early, went in and sat down, and I was like the only one in the classroom. And I'm looking at my watch, and I'm like, it's 15 minutes till class starts. Where is everybody, you know? Like, because in the Marine Corps, if you're not 15 minutes early, you're late. So I'm kind of wondering, I'm like, I can't believe, like, nobody's here. Like, this is this is college. We're supposed to be professional. And then, like, class starts, like, I think it was an 8 a.m. class. Um, and kids are rolling in at 8.15, 8.20, 8.25, and they've got pajamas on. And, like, they're barely awake. And there's kids coming in just with their heads down. And, like, here's a person that prepared a lecture, took time to get everything together, like drove out of their way to come in. They didn't have to do that. You know, I like left their family, drove on dangerous roads, are sitting down inside of a classroom and are presenting things that they took time. They have a PhD in this. Clearly they care about it. And I just couldn't imagine. I'm like, how could you be so rude to, to put your head down and show up this late and not, not be dressed and not take notes and not even, even if you don't care, at least pretend for their benefit that you cared. And I remember I was, I was so angry and mad, and I was I was waiting for the teacher because I came from the military. I'm like, this this lady is going to blow up on the classroom, and she just never did. And I was like, well, I can't can't believe how well she's handling this. Um, and I remember driving home from school that day, and there was like tears running down my face. I was like, because I was just so upset for her that somebody would be that disrespectful. Um, and then driving home and talking to my wife, I'm like, I don't think this is going to work out. Like, I can't go there every single day. Um. I ended up making friends with uh, another veteran that was on campus at the Veterans Center. So I, I remember calling uh, my counselor and being like, I don't think this is going to work out, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And then he was like, well, let's get you over to the Veterans Center and just kind of talk to people over there. He's like, this isn't, uh, this isn't abnormal for you to be feeling this way. But I kind of talked to the, 
the other vets. They called it the bunker at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. It was kind of like our hangout. I hadn't known about that before, but just hearing other veterans being like, you just need to chill, relax. Kids are going to show up late. You just take care of you and focus on what you need to take care of and let them focus on whatever you're on a different trajectory. And they said, you know, at the end of the day, these are going to be the people you're competing against when you're applying for these competitive places you want to go to. So I just kind of take that as a moment of comfort or whatever. But it was, it was very hard for me to just kind of um, unstrap the pack. Like people talk about it, like, you know, dropping their pack or whatever, but to drop that pack and drop that weight and drop that burden and realize like, this is not the military. Um, if, if this kid wants to come in 20 minutes late and in pajamas, that's not affecting me at all. I can still pay attention to whatever. And, and clearly the professor doesn't care. So like, let me just get what I can out of this course and they're going to get what they get out of it. As long as I'm, you know, getting an A in this course, like achieving, getting everything that I paid for and really getting my money's worth. That was kind of like what I, I told myself uh, to just worry about me and what I could control um, and not worry so much about everybody else. But that was a, a huge transition for me going to college, coming out of the Marine Corps after 12 years. Yeah, um, so much of that is 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 very, very familiar in terms of my own transition. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. And also, I think we should probably put you, bring you back for another conversation. Part two. I'm sitting here thinking, like, this went yeah, way this too is, fast. This, we need part two. Absolutely. I feel like there's more to be said <laughs> here. So we, so I hope that we can have you back another time. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you for being the embodiment of Simplify. And for those that don't know what Simplify is, Simper Fidelis, always faithful, always faithful. So thank you for embodying what always faithful is. Is there... Before we close out our show, is there anything that you would like to share with the larger community before we go? You know, veterans are just a part of the community. And I think it's just kind of meeting people where they're at. And that's what I learned what I had to do. Um, was just kind of meet them and, and be there and, and in the moment and not be worried about everything else like that. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for giving us your time. For more Let's Talk UNLV, be sure to follow us on social media where you can get the latest updates on the show plus great behind-the-scenes content. We're on Facebook at Let's Talk UNLV Podcast, Twitter at Let's Talk UNLV, and Instagram at Let's Talk UNLV Podcast.